actually, it's not me with the accent. I think you've got the accent. <laughs> Isn't it strange? We all think that we talk normal. You know, this is normal to me, but it's maybe not normal to you. But what a joy it is to be here this morning. And um, it's good to see you look all fresh and well. Nobody's sleeping. And um, I felt hard this morning because I didn't get into um, about 11.30. We had Bible study last night and the preacher was a little bit long-winded. I can't blame anyone, it was me. So he didn't finish the 8.52, so I realized I have two and a half hours to travel here and uh, I better get on the road. But what a joy it is to be here and what a, a joy it is to know God personally. You know, I was brought up in a I was brought up in a country, Northern Ireland, which is a country full of a lot of hatred, a lot of prejudice, a lot of murder, a lot of mayhem. Um, I was brought up in a home where my mother and father had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But at a very early age, I realized when I was four years of age that Northern Ireland was split down the middle. And I realized that Protestants and Catholics a lot of the times didn't even talk. And at the age of four, I was in a shop one day when a bomb went off in my town and it, it, it damaged a lot of the town. And at the age of four, I realized that I lived in a country that was different. But anyway, thank God for a family that brought me up to know what life was all about. And I wanna say this, if there's somebody here this morning and you're asking the big question, what is this all about? What, what's life all about? If you take God out of the, the equation, then life is pointless. It's pointless. Why, why live? I mean, you just live to die, and it's the law of the harvest, you know, the survival of the fittest. But at an early age, I made a decision that I wanted to live for God. But you know, as a young person, especially when you get into your teenage years, it's really hard to live for God in this world. And the reason is there's so many distractions. There's so many things to pull you away in the opposite direction. And um, I found myself, I wanted to be one of the guys and I thought it was cool to run with a crowd and I did, I played soccer, I was in a band, I was in the army cadets. I think when you're young you want to be accepted and you want to be one of whether it's a girl or a guy, you just want to be looked up to, respected, be popular. So things like that were, were really important to me. But I remember always fighting things like alcohol. You know, all my buddies were drinking alcohol and I'm like, this is wrong. I mean, I just knew that there was something wrong with alcohol. Why, why does anybody need alcohol to, to make them feel good or you know, act silly? I mean, I've seen guys acting very, very silly with alcohol, and I'm like, why would I want that? But, so I remained strong on the alcohol issue until maybe 16. And the guys just wore me down, wore me down, and they knew I was a Christian, and they would say, Paul, tell me this, will one drink take you to hell? I said, I don't think so. Well, hello? And they said, take a drink, and I would just go, no, I don't need that. Eventually, they kept doing that and doing that until I took that drink. And that one drink led me in a life of 10 years of alcoholism. They just wore me down, wore me down. And, you know, I'll say this 
to you young people, it takes a real man and a real woman to say no. Whether it's to sexual temptation, alcohol, or drugs, any fool can do that. Any fool can, can watch pornography. Any fool can sleep around. Any fool can take drugs or alcohol, but it takes a real man, a real woman to say no. Unfortunately, at that time, I wasn't strong enough. I thought I was, but I wasn't. Anyway, my great ambition in life in Northern Ireland was to be a police officer. I saw the terrorism. I saw the terrorists destroying my country. I saw the deaths. I saw the murders. I saw the mayhem. And I wanted to be part of the answer. My dream was to be a police officer. At the age of 19, I had the privilege of joining the Royal Ulster Constabulary. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. I'll give you a brief history lesson in like two seconds. Ireland has got two countries, okay? Most people think Ireland's one country. It's not. Ireland is one island, but there's two countries. Ireland used to be completely under the British. But in 1921, the Republic of Ireland, or the south of Ireland, decided to go independent, which left a border. So Northern Ireland was British. The Republic of Ireland was independent. Well, I became a British police officer. And because we wanted to remain British, and a lot of the terrorists wanted a united Ireland, they wanted to remove the border. As a British police officer, I then became a legitimate target. I remember at the age of 19, joining the police, and it happened after one of the biggest destructions of police officers that ever happened in 35 years of terrorism. About 10 days before I joined, there was about 12 police officers wiped out in a mortar attack, which was basically the terrorists pulled up a, tr a truck beside the police station. They had the, the mortars, and they pressed the button, and they went over the wall and landed on the police kitchen and just wiped the kitchen out, including the police officers. I remember at the age of 19 saying, I'm too young to die. And I'm thinking, am I, is this crazy? I mean, I'm 19 years of age. I've got my whole life ahead of me. Do I really want to do that? And I struggled with that for 10 days. But anyway, to cut a long story short, I took the deep breath and I, I, I joined. I remember going to the, the police depot on a Sunday. And it was like this here. There was a, a pulpit like this. And I remember the officer walking in. And he had a whole load of books. And we were all sitting there, and there was hardly a word because all 90 of them recruits were feeling what I'm doing. Am I making the worst decision of my life here? And there was silence, there was tension in the air because we were all young. Most of us were 19, 20, 21. And I remember the officer coming in and he says, Welcome to the Royal Ulster Constabulary. You have now become a legitimate target for life. Oh, thanks for the encouragement. That's the first thing he said. He said, if you decide right now that you're done, you want to go, he says, the terrorists already know your number plate. They've checked every plate of every vehicle coming through them gates. They knew every 14 weeks there was new recruits come in and the old recruits went out every 14 weeks. So we realized that, well, I realized pretty quick that you know, I'm in this for the duration, and uh, I'm also realized that we're not playing games here. This is for real. 
And one thing I'll say is it causes you to grow up real quick. It also causes you to think about life and death and about eternity. But at that stage, I'd started kind of drinking at the age of 16. By the age of 19, I was just, I was open to go the wrong way. I got heavily into drinking because they said a police officer in Northern Ireland either turned to one of two things, alcohol or God. And there was a lot of pressure as a police officer. There was a lot of our colleagues being killed. Out of 13,500 men, we lost 300 police officers. And the population of Northern Ireland is the same size as Nebraska. 1.8 million people. In fact, back in that day, it was 1.5 million. And we, to lose, can you imagine losing 300 police officers in Nebraska? That's a lot of police officers. Anyway, you had to be careful what way you traveled home. You had to check your vehicle every day for booby trap bombs. Under the driver's seat, what the terrorists did is they put a magnetic bomb under the car and it was a mercury tilt bomb. So whenever the vehicle took off, the mercury connected, boom. Sometimes I would actually drive with my car door open for the first 100 yards and just hit the brakes so that if the bomb went off, I would be thrown out of the vehicle. The blast sometimes would take you out and sometimes uh, police officers wouldn't lose their legs or whatever. And uh, you may think that's crazy, but that was life for me for 15 years. You never in your house turned a light on and uh, you didn't turn a light on without closing the curtains. And the reason was this, that if your light was on and the terrorist was outside, and you, he could have just pinged you off like that. But I'm saying all this to say something, that um, that lifestyle caused me to think what life was all about. Every day I would say, what would happen if this was my last day? Where would I go? And uh, maybe you've never been confronted with that. Maybe you have. But I want to say that was an everyday reality to me. I would go out on duty and sometimes my legs would be jelly. As I drove them roads, I was on the border for five and a quarter years. Anyway, at the age of 25, my father was ill. It caused me to have a look in the mirror to see what life was all about for me. I remember one day driving over a bomb. I remember getting back to the station and the, our intelligence man come and says, Men, have you been down this road in this last eight hours? We says, Yes, 20 minutes ago. He says, congratulations, you've just driven over a 1,500-pound bomb. I remember saying, I need to get my life right with God. I had no peace inside. I want to say something, that you can have everything that this world can offer you and yet have no peace. I was going on two vacations a year to the Mediterranean. I was going to Greece, to Spain, to Portugal every year, Cyprus, Israel. I was heading to Scotland seven times a year to watch my favorite football team. I had a beautiful girlfriend, flashy car. I had loads of money, and yet there was an emptiness in my heart. And I remember one of my colleagues in the police, he used to say every Monday morning to me, Paul, you're one happy man. And it used to cut me in two because I wasn't a happy man. There was an emptiness in my heart, and I knew what that emptiness was. It was Jesus Christ. I remember going to church one night and um, I said, I need to find this peace. I need to find a purpose for living because I don't have it. I went into church on a Sunday night and the preacher was preaching right to me. Well, I thought he was preaching to me. There was 1,500 people there, but he was talking to me. 
You ever been in church and you feel like a preacher's talking right to you? Or somebody's told them your story? Well, that was me. That. So I, I came home and I remember just saying to, asking my mother a question. Mom, can God forgive every sin? I had, such, I had 10 years of guilt, 10 years of shame, 10 years of selfishness, just running from God. And um, I just needed to get rid of this guilt. And she shared two scriptures with me from the Old Testament. She said, as far as the east is from the west, that's as far God removes your sin when you throw the hands up and say sorry. She also told me that God has got a sea of forgetfulness and that when we give him our shame, our rebellion, our pride, that he puts our sin in the sea of his forgetfulness never again to bring it to his remembrance. And I remember saying that I want to know that. And I'll tell you where peace comes. Peace comes when you give your junk to God and he gives you his forgiveness. That's, if you want to, if you ask me today, what is the ultimate in life? The ultimate in life, the peak of the mountain is to know God as your friend, but know that he's on your side and he's not against you. And anyway, I was still a police officer and one of the first things that God put his finger on when I gave my heart to Jesus was, I was a member of quite a few secret societies in Ireland. Now, you probably, maybe, maybe somebody's heard of, anybody, maybe the older ones heard of the Orange Order in Northern Ireland? If you haven't heard of the Orange Order, you haven't heard of the other two, which is the Royal Arch Purple and the Royal Black Institution. At the age of 19, I had went to the highest degree in them three secret societies. And I thought I was a man, and these were Protestant secret societies. And really, they were, they cultivated a lot of prejudice against the Catholics. So one in every three Protestant males in Northern Ireland were part of this secret society. And um, the Lord put his finger on me and says, Paul, I want you to come out. Well, I remember, by the way, just to backtrack real quick, that night that I gave my heart to the Lord and just said, sorry, Lord, I need you. I want to live for you. I made a statement to God and I meant it. God, I said, Lord, if you will forgive every sin that I've ever done, if you will give me a home in heaven forever and ever and ever, I will do anything for you. And I meant it. Now think about it. That whatever sin you're carrying this morning, whatever you've done wrong in your life, Jesus wants to forgive that and wipe the slate clean. He paid a heavy penalty for your sin. But also he wants to give you a home in heaven forever. So I got a revelation that and I said, I'll do anything for you. Well, about a week later, the Lord said, not only did he want me to come out of them secret societies, but he wanted me to expose them for the first time in 212 years. He said, I want you to write books and I want you to expose them because there's a lot of people that are entangled in them secret societies out of fear. Well, to cut a long story short, I wrote three books and um, I got a lot of opposition. Um, a lot of people in my own community wouldn't even talk to me because they felt I had portrayed the Protestant cause and whatever in Northern Ireland. But I want to say something, that since I released them books, thousands of men have had the courage
to resign from them secret societies that fostered hatred and prejudice in our country. Um, not only that, but I set up a website, and that was back just when the internet was starting to really take off. And uh, in a small country, remember a very small country, over two million people have now went onto that website. And many, many men have found God or felt the courage to leave them secret societies. Anyway, after I had done that, just whenever I finished the last book, um, I remember going to a preacher's conference in Texas. And there was a Native American woman there called Pat Phillips from the Omaha Indian Reservation. At that conference, there was 1,500 preachers and their wives about that. And she got up. She was asked to get up and share her story. She talked about the Indian Reservation. She talked about how that the churches were 100% white, and yet the community was 85% Native American. Any of the Native Americans that went into the white churches experienced prejudice. And she was crying. She was broken. And she made a statement that I couldn't shake off. Nobody will serve my people. Nobody will serve my people. And I remember feeling very emotional about it. And I'm going to say something. I wasn't somebody who cried easy. When you have been a police officer in Northern Ireland for 15 years, you've dealt with death. You've dealt with rapes. You name it. We, we, we had dealt with When you've dealt with that, you don't become easily moved. It takes a lot to really get you emotional. But this woman touched my heart. So for three months, I tried to shake it off. I says, it's just like, I just said, if this is God, then it won't go away. But if it's just one of them things, I'll forget about it after a week. Well, three months later, the burden for this woman got stronger and stronger and stronger. I said, I need to call this woman. I need to get a hold of this woman and uh, talk to her and see how many people had come out to preach for her or even maybe start a church. So I called her. And by the way, this was a good preacher's conference. These weren't a whole load of liberal preachers. These were very strong um, preachers that, that were out there doing things. I called her and I says, Pat, just, I was just checking up to see how many people had come to see you on the reservation. She says, nobody has called me. I'm like, oh dear. I, I said, Pat, I'm coming over. But I thought I was going to be this traveling evangelist. I'll come over twice a year and maybe preach for a couple of weeks and then go back to my comfort zone in Northern Ireland because by that stage, the terrorism was over. After 35 years of terrorism, it was finally over. So it was time to enjoy my country and enjoy the peace. And God says, I want you to go over to the Indian Reservation. Well, when you say something to God, when you make a vow to God, you better keep it. Remember what I said that night when I threw my hands up before God? Lord, if you'll take away all my sin, if you will give me a home in heaven forever and ever and ever, I'll do anything for you. Well, I said, Pat, I'm coming over. I came over to the reservation and I realized that there was the story that she had given about the drunkenness, the drugs, the sexual abuse, the breakdown of the family, Mums and dads were not looking after the children. The, the grandmother was looking after the kids. And the whole society seemed to have broken down. 
and I realized everything she had said was true. I also realized that the churches, there were seven churches on that reservation, and they didn't want anything. They didn't seem to want to have anything to do with a Native American. And I said, you know, this is not Christianity. Christianity is reaching out to everybody, reaching out to all colors, all creeds. By the way, Jesus is colorblind. Do you know that? He's colorblind. He doesn't look at color. He doesn't look at race. He looks at a heart. He looks at your heart. He is interested in your heart. By the way, how's your heart this morning? How's your heart with God? Or are you full of selfishness and sin and you think that you're going to paddle your canoe the rest of your life? Let me tell you something very important. There is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to shun. This whole thing's real. Anyway, I came over three times to the reservation. The last time I came over, I was married. I'd found my wife and um, I'd waited a long time. And you know what? It's just as well because when you're in the police, whenever you're writing a book on secret societies and you're not popular, um, it wouldn't have been easy for a wife to deal with that, especially in Northern Ireland context. My life was threatened by the terrorists, that they would wipe me out if I released them books. But you know what? God preserved my life. Um, anyway, the last time I came over to Nebraska with my wife, we went to a little children's home where the orphans stayed when mom and dad was out drunk or stuck in the casino. And we went into that, that little home called Mark of Honor. It's called Mark of Honor. And all the kids were sitting there. They were lifeless. Nobody was talking to anybody. They were depressed. Even seemed like the staff weren't even communicating with them. And uh, it broke my heart that there was no life there. We spent one hour with them kids. And they were bouncing about. We were doing piggybacks. We were fighting with them, wrestling with them. And when we were leaving, they were full of life. And God spoke to me and says, if you can spend 60 minutes with them and see that happen, what would it be like if you give your life to these people? I came home that night. I was getting into bed. My wife was getting into bed. And she says, Paul, we need to come over here. I says, I know. I know. So we decided that night when we got home, the first thing we would do is we would get up in front of the church the first Sunday and tell them what we're doing. And we were going to tell our family right away. The reason why we did it right away is so we couldn't talk ourselves out of it. Because everything within me was saying, no, no, you're comfortable. I had just got married a couple of years before. I'd just become a daddy. I lived in the most beautiful country in the world. And honestly, Northern Ireland's beautiful. Ireland's beautiful. Northern Ireland's beautiful. In fact, they say that the northern coast is one of the five most beautiful in the world. I lived 30 minutes from the sea. Between my house and the sea was some of the most beautiful mountains in the world. So I was in my comfort zone and my country was at peace and I was at peace and life was brilliant. But can I tell you something? The greatest thing on earth is to be in the will of God. There is nothing like being in the will of God. Anyway, we told our families and um, friends and everybody, and we had to sell up everything we had. So we just got married. All of our wedding presents were lovely. 
and I had a lot of friends, so they, our whole house was just, everyone was looking good. I had to sell or give away everything in that house. And my friends thought it was Christmas and Thanksgiving all come at the one time. It's like, they were getting all the, I mean, I had so much in that house that I was in love with. And they would say, oh, Paul, it's so generous of you to give us this. And my heart was ripped in two. I'm like, they're so happy and inside, even though I, we were doing the right thing, it was like, oh, you know what I'm talking about. When God tells you to do something, you take a deep breath, but that doesn't mean it's easy. So we sold up everything and we moved to Nebraska. We moved to the Indian Reservation. And guess what? Reality started to sink in. We didn't have a church. We didn't have a congregation. We didn't have any financial support. The only financial support we had was our savings. And the only congregation we had was that Indian woman, Pat Phillips. So I'm like, okay, we've told our family we're moving to the, the reservation because God wants to move there. The only problem is we don't have anything apart from him. And I can tell you, when God speaks to you, you need to have faith. What is faith? You know, we, we can have a lot of definitions of faith. Of course, we know uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, I'll, I'll give you in the literal reading. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, it literally means faith is the essence of expectancy. And faith is basically a response to God. When God speaks, you respond. It's not something you whip up. It's not some abstract thing. Well, I believe God spoke to us, and he actually spoke to us through um, Jeremiah 1.10. And he called us to this reservation in Nebraska, Jeremiah 1.10. Well, guess what? That was the exact same passage that Ron Brown set Mission Nebraska up with, Jeremiah 1.10. And, um, well, we didn't have anything. I said, I'm going to have to get busy. And my wife got busy, and I got busy. We, we started church the last... Um, Sunday in November 2007. We didn't know whether anybody would turn up apart from my wife, myself, my son who was one, and Pat Phillips. Well, the first Sunday we, we, we rented out a fire hall, 12 people turned up, and we thought revival had hit Nebraska. <laughs> 12 people, I mean, wow. And, and by the way, there's only 780 people live in Walt Hill. So we didn't move to a big city. The second week, 26 people turned up. No, sorry, I tell a lie. 18 people. The third week, the third week, 26 people turned up. And I can tell you what, that was nine years ago. And it just seems like every week, God is bringing somebody new into that, into that church. And I'll bring it right up to date. Um, it's just been a time of blessing. Um, the biggest problem we have at the moment is... Uh, we, were, we were donated the funeral home in Walt Hill. We went from the fire hall, it was too small. We moved to the funeral home that holds about 100 people. And we are squeezing 130 people into that church on a Sunday morning now. And, it only, and by the way, this is in a small village. On Sunday night, I think Gordon was at, we also started church in Decatur. And I don't have time to talk about that this morning, but... We started church in Decatur, and we did a tent revival. We started two weeks ago in Decatur, and we also did it on, on Walt Hill. Do you know how many people came to that tent 
on Sunday night in Walt Hill, that little village, somewhere between 200 and 220. And we used the chairs, by the way, from this, from this school. And I want to thank the school for their generosity in doing that. I'm here to tell you, when you step out by faith, God blesses you. And I urge you, if you're in this, this room this morning, and maybe you're wondering, what is life all about? Life is all about knowing God. Life is all about serving God. And life is all about proving God. I have proved God. How about you this morning? Would you bow your heads in a word of prayer this morning? I want to ask you a question this morning. I want to ask you, and I'm, all I'm asking is you to be really, really straight with me this morning. Be really, really honest with me this morning. Do you know God? Do you honestly, honestly know God? Have you proved God? Or do you just have religion in your head? Or maybe you're here this morning and you say, I don't even know God, but I want to know God. Is there somebody here this morning that's not right with God? Or you feel that you don't know God, but you would like to know Him, and you would have the courage. By the way, it takes a real man, a real woman, to stand for God. You would like to give your heart, your life, your future to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there one here this morning? Would you just raise your hand? You want to give your life to Him this morning? Anybody this morning? It takes courage. It's only a real man, a real woman can live for Him. Is there one this morning here? And you say, I want to know God personally this morning. Okay. So I take it every one of you knows God. Is there someone here that has maybe wandered from God? There's maybe a time in your life when you were you felt that you had made a decision for the Lord, but just life circumstances has caused you to wander and you would like to get right with him this morning. Is there one that would like to get right with the Lord this morning? Would you just raise your hand real quick this morning? Anybody? Everybody's right with God. There's one hand this morning. Praise God. There's another hand. Just lift it real high because I can't see any hands. There's one hand. There's two hands. There's another. There's another this morning. There's another this morning. There's another. There's another. There's another. There's another. By the way, it's all men. There's, there's a girl this morning. Praise God for that. I took courage this morning. I'm not here to play games this morning. I'm here to... Yes, there's another hand. There's another hand this morning. There's another hand. That took courage this morning. I see your hand. I see your hand this morning, lady. God's moving here. I, I'm just here for one purpose, to tell you that God is real. And that if you prove him this morning, he will change your life forever. Girls, it's mainly guys that have put their hand up this morning. Just, can I, listen, the, the one thing about the Irish, they call a spade a spade. Are you living for God? Can you honestly say that you have that peace, that purpose in life? Are you right with God this morning or do you want to get right with him? Is there some girl here this morning, you may be struggling, maybe life is just, it's, you've went a direction that you never thought you would end up, but you want to get right with him this morning. You want to know the joy of all your sins forgiven. You want to be at peace with him. Is there one more before we pray? There's two girls this morning. Yes. It takes honesty and it takes courage. I don't want to prolong this. I, I, I want to respect the time that has been given to me, but I had to make an appeal this morning. Is there one more person, young man, young woman this morning? There's another man. 
That takes real courage. Listen, I, I want to say that at your age, it takes real courage to say, I want to live for him. I don't want to live for myself. I want to live for him for the final time. This could be the final time that you ever have an opportunity. Why do I say that? I was a police officer. There's two more hands at the back. There's another hand at the back. There, there's another hand, another hand. There's about three or four girls putting their hand up this morning. I want to say this. When you've been a police officer for 15 years and you've had to pull 17-year-old boys out of a car dead and another boy with, had 72 stitches in his head, you always, yes, I see your hand there. I see your hand as well. Praise God this morning. I see your hand as well. You know, I'm a dying man preaching to dying men and women. Can I pray this morning? Could I just urge you in your simple way, just, to, just ask God to forgive you. If you've raised your hand this morning, just ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you for all your sin and realize that he came to the cross. He died a cruel death so that you could be free. He paid for your penalty. Sin has already been paid for, but you need to take a hold of it by faith. Just ask the Lord to forgive you. Thank him for dying for all your sin. And then ask him to come into your life, take control of your life, and to lead you and guide you. And I want to just say one further thing before I pray. Tell somebody, if you raised your hand this morning and you really, really meant it, would you tell a friend before the end of today, would you say to somebody, the Bible says this, or Jesus said this, if you're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you. But if you confess him before men, he will confess you before his father. Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for this school this morning. Lord, even the story of how this school come about and how it has progressed. And Lord, the lovely students that you have brought to, to this place. I want to thank you. I pray a blessing upon it. Lord, I pray for every student here today and every teacher. I pray that your hand would be upon them. Would you lead? Would you guide? Would you protect? I pray that there would be such a move of your Holy Spirit in this place. Lord, that it would, wouldn't just affect those that are here this morning. It would affect families. It would affect communities. It would affect even communities outside of the United States. I just pray for a blessing upon every single person here today. And for those that have made a decision, would you help them and strengthen them? For those that are okay with you, just I pray that they will grow with you. For those that don't know you and haven't made a decision, I pray that they would make a decision. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.